Section 10 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 4, Part 3. On the Origin of the Planetary System. The presence of partly fine and partly coarse heavy masses diffused in cosmical space is more distinctly revealed by the phenomena of asteroids and of meteorites. We know now that these are bodies which ranged about in cosmical space before they came within the region of our terrestrial atmosphere. In the more strongly resisting medium which this atmosphere offers, they are delayed in their motion and at the same time are heated by the corresponding friction. Many of them may still find an escape from the terrestrial atmosphere and continue their path through space with an altered and retarded motion. Others fall to the earth, the larger ones as meteorites, while the smaller ones are probably resolved into dust by the heat and as such fall without being seen. According to Alexander Herschel's estimate, we may figure shooting stars as being on an average of the same size as paving stones, their incandescence mostly occurs in the higher and most attenuated regions of the atmosphere, 18 miles and more above the surface of the Earth. As they move in space under the influence of the same laws as the planets and comets, they possess a planetary velocity of from 18 to 40 miles in a second. By this, also, we observe that they are in fact stella cadente, falling stars as they have long been called by poets. This enormous velocity with which they enter our atmosphere is undoubtedly the cause of their becoming heated. You all know that friction heats the bodies rubbed. Every match that we ignite, every badly greased coach wheel, every auger which we work in hard wood teaches this. The air, like solid bodies, not only becomes heated by friction, but also by the work consumed in its compression. One of the most important results of modern physics the actual proof of which is mainly due to the Englishman Joule, is that, in such a case, the heat developed is exactly proportional to the work expended. If, like the mechanicians, we measure the work done by the weight which would be necessary to produce it, multiplied by the height from which it must fall, Joule has shown that the work produced by a given weight of water falling through a height of 425 meters would be just sufficient to raise the same weight of water through 1 degree centigrade. The equivalent in work of a velocity of 18 to 24 miles in a second may be easily calculated from known mechanical laws. And this, transformed into heat, would be sufficient to raise the temperature of a piece of meteoric iron to 900,000 to 2,500,000 degrees centigrade, provided that all the heat were retained by the iron and did not, as it undoubtedly does, mainly pass into the air. This calculation shows, at any rate, that the velocity of the shooting stars is perfectly adequate to raise them to the most violent incandescence. The temperatures attainable by terrestrial means scarcely exceed 2,000 degrees. In fact, the outer crusts of meteoric stones generally show traces of incipient fusion, and in cases in which observers examined with sufficient promptitude the stones which had fallen, they found them hot on the surface, while the interior of detached pieces seemed to show the intense cold of cosmical space. To the individual observer who casually looks towards the starry sky, 
the meteorites appear as a rare and exceptional phenomenon. If, however, they are continuously observed, they are seen with tolerable regularity, especially towards morning when they usually fall. But a single observer only views but a small part of the atmosphere, and if they are calculated for the entire surface of the earth, it results that about seven and a half millions fall every day. In our regions of space, they are somewhat sparse and distant from each other. According to Alexander Herschel's estimates, each stone is, on an average, at a distance of 450 miles from its neighbors. But the Earth moves through 18 miles every second and has a diameter of 7,820 miles and therefore sweeps through 876 millions of cubic miles of space every second and carries with it whatever stones are contained therein. Many groups are irregularly distributed in space, being probably those which have already undergone disturbances by planets. There are also denser swarms which move in regular elliptical orbits, cutting the Earth's orbit in definite places, and therefore always occur on particular days of the year. Thus the 10th of August of every year is remarkable, and every 33 years the splendid fireworks of the 12th to the 14th of November repeats itself for a few years. It is remarkable that certain comets accompany the paths of these swarms and give rise to the supposition that the comets gradually split up into meteoric swarms. This is an important process. What the Earth does is done by the other planets, and in a far higher degree by the Sun, towards which all the smaller bodies of our system must fall. Those, therefore, that are more subject to the influence of the resisting medium, and which must fall the more rapidly, the smaller they are. The Earth and the planets have for millions of years been sweeping together the loose masses in space, and they hold fast what they have once attracted. But it follows from this that the Earth and the planets were once smaller than they are now, and that more mass was diffused in space. And if we follow out this consideration, it takes us back to a state of things in which, perhaps, all the mass now accumulated in the sun and in the planets wandered loosely diffused in space. If we consider further that the small masses of meteorites as they now fall have perhaps been formed by the gradual aggregation of fine dust, we see ourselves led to a primitive condition of fine nebulous masses. From this point of view, that the fall of shooting stars and of meteorites is perhaps only a small survival of a process which once built up worlds, it assumes far greater significance. This would be a supposition of which we might admit the possibility, but which could not perhaps claim any great degree of probability if we did not find that our predecessors, starting from quite different considerations, had arrived at the same hypothesis. You know that a considerable number of planets rotate around the Sun besides the eight larger ones. Mercury, Venus, the Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. In the interval between Mars and Jupiter, there circulate, as far as we know, 156 small planets or planetoids. Moons also rotate about the larger planets, that is, about the Earth and the four most distant ones, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and lastly the Sun, and at any rate the larger planets, rotate about their own axes. Now, in the first place, it is remarkable that all the planes of rotation of the planets and of their satellites, as well as the equatorial planes of these planets, do not vary much from each other, 
and that in these planes all the rotation is in the same direction. The only considerable exceptions known are the moons of Uranus, whose plane is almost at right angles to the planes of the larger planets. It must at the same time be remarked that the coincidence in the direction of these planes is on the whole greater, the longer are the bodies and the larger the paths in question, while in the smaller bodies, and for the smaller paths, especially for the rotations of the planets about their own axes, considerable divergences occur. Thus the planes of all the planets, with the exception of Mercury and of the small ones between Mars and Jupiter, differ at most by three degrees from the path of the Earth. The equatorial plane of the Sun deviates by only seven and a half degrees, that of Jupiter only half as much. The equatorial plane of the Earth deviates, it is true, to the extent of twenty-three and a half degrees, and that of Mars by twenty-eight and a half degrees, and the separate paths of the small planet's satellites differ still more. But in these paths they all move direct, all in the same direction about the Sun, and as far as can be ascertained, also about their own axes, like the Earth, that is, from west to east. If they had originated independently of each other, and had come together, any direction of the planes for each individual one would have been equally probable. A reverse direction of the orbit would have been just as probable as a direct one. Decidedly elliptical paths would have been as probable as the almost circular ones which we meet with in all the bodies we have named. There is, in fact, a complete irregularity in the comets and the meteoric swarms, which we have much reason for considering to be formations which have only accidentally come within the sphere of the sun's attraction. The number of coincidences in the orbits of the planets and their satellites is too great to be ascribed to accident. We must inquire for the reason of this coincidence, and this can only be sought in a primitive connection of the entire mass. Now we are acquainted with forces and processes which condense an originally diffused mass, but none which could drive into space such large masses as the planets in the condition we now find them. Moreover, if they had become detached from the common mass, at a place much nearer the sun, they ought to have a markedly elliptical orbit. We must assume, accordingly, that this mass in its primitive condition extended at least to the orbit of the outermost planets. These were the essential features of the considerations which led Kant and Laplace to their hypothesis. In their view, our system was originally a chaotic ball of nebulous matter, of which originally, when it extended to the path of the most distant planet, many billions of cubic miles could contain scarcely a gram of mass. This ball, when it had become detached from the nebulous balls of the adjacent fixed stars, possessed a slow movement of rotation. It became condensed under the influence of the reciprocal attraction of its parts, and in the degree in which it condensed, the rotatory motion increased and formed it into a flat disk. From time to time, masses at the circumference of this disk became detached under the influence of the increasing centrifugal force. That which became detached formed again into a rotating nebulous mass, which either simply condensed and formed a planet, or during this condensation again repelled masses from the periphery, which became satellites, or in one case, that of Saturn, remained as a coherent ring. In another case, the mass which separated from the outside of the chief ball, divided into many parts, detached from each other, and furnished the swarms of small planets between Mars and Jupiter. 
Our more recent experience as to the nature of star showers teaches us that this process of the condensation of loosely diffused masses to form larger bodies is by no means complete, but still goes on, though the traces are slight. The form in which it now appears is altered by the fact that, meanwhile, the gaseous or dust-like mass diffused in space had united under the influence of the force of attraction, and of the force of crystallization of their constituents to larger pieces than originally existed. The showers of stars, as examples now taking place of the process which formed the heavenly bodies, are important from another point of view. They develop light and heat, and that directs us to a third series of considerations, which leads again to the same goal. All life and all motion on our earth is, with few exceptions, kept up by a single force that of the sun's rays which bring to us light and heat. They warm the air of the hot zones, this becomes lighter and ascends, while the colder air flows towards the poles. Thus is formed the great circulation of the passage winds. Local differences of temperature over land and sea, plains and mountains, disturb the uniformity of this great motion, and produce for us the capricious change of winds. Warm aqueous vapors ascend with the warm air, become condensed into clouds, and fall in the cooler zones and upon the snowy tops of the mountains as rain and as snow. The water collects in brooks, in rivers, moistens the plains, and makes life possible, crumbles the stones, carries their fragments along, and thus works at the geological transformation of the earth's surface. It is only under the influence of the sun's rays that the variegated covering of plants of the earth grows, and while they grow, they accumulate in their structure organic matter, which partly serves the whole animal kingdom as food, and serves man more particularly as fuel. Coals and lignites, the sources of power of our steam engines, are remains of primitive plants, the ancient production of the sun's rays. Need we wonder if, to our forefathers of the Aryan race in India and Persia, the sun appeared as the fittest symbol of the deity? They were right in regarding it as the giver of all life as the ultimate source of almost all that has happened on earth. But whence does the sun acquire this force? It radiates forth a more intense light than can be attained with any terrestrial means. It yields as much heat as if 1,500 pounds of coal were burned every hour upon each square foot of its surface. Of the heat which thus issues from it, the small fraction which enters our atmosphere furnishes a great mechanical force. Every steam engine teaches us that heat can produce such force. The sun, in fact, drives on earth a kind of steam engine whose performances are far greater than those of artificially constructed machines. The circulation of water in the atmosphere raises, as has been said, the water evaporated from the warm tropical seas to the mountain heights. It is, as it were, a water-raising engine of the most magnificent kind, with whose power no artificial machine can be even distantly compared. I have previously explained the mechanical equivalent of heat. Calculated by that standard, the work which the sun produces by its radiation is equal to the constant exertion of 7,000 horsepower for each square foot of the sun's surface. For a long time, experience had impressed on our mechanicians that a working force cannot be produced from nothing that it can only be taken from the stores which nature possesses, which are strictly limited and which cannot be increased at pleasure, whether it be taken from the rushing water or from the wind, whether from the layers of coal 
or from men and from animals which cannot work without the consumption of food. Modern physics has attempted to prove the universality of this experience, to show that it applies to the great whole of all natural processes and is independent of the special interests of man. These have been generalized and comprehended in the all-ruling natural law of the conservation of force. No natural process, and no series of natural processes, can be found, however manifold may be the changes which take place among them, by which a motive force can be continuously produced without a corresponding consumption. Just as the human race finds on earth but a limited supply of motive forces, capable of producing work, which it can utilize but not increase, so also must this be the case in the great whole of nature. The universe has its definite store of force, which works in it under ever-varying forms, is indestructible, not to be increased, everlasting, and unchangeable like matter itself. It seems as if Goethe had an idea of this when he makes the earth spirit speak of himself as the representative of natural force. In the currents of life, in the tempests of motion, in the fervor of art, in the fire, in the storm, hither and thither, over and under, wend I and wander. Birth in the grave, limitless ocean, where the restless wave undulates ever, under and over, their seething strife, heaving and weaving the changes of life. At the whirling loom of time unawed, I work the living mantle of God. Let us return to the special question which concerns us here. Whence does the sun derive this enormous store of force which it sends out? On earth, the processes of combustion are the most abundant source of heat. Does the sun's heat originate in a process of this kind? To this question we can reply with a complete and decided negative, for we now know that the sun contains the terrestrial elements with which we are acquainted. End of section 10. Read by Verla Vieira, Las Cruces, New Mexico, USA, September 28, 2021.